Hello and welcome along to our first home buyers webinar. We are so excited tonight because we are going to be talking about how to buy your first home in Auckland in 2022. Now, if you've never been along to one of our webinars before, my name is Ed We've got Andrew over here and Sammy. We're going to introduce ourselves more shortly. But what I need you to know is we are in for a rock and ride tonight because we're going to make buying your first home a hell of a lot of fun. Now, look, people are going to join in right throughout the night. But here's what I need you to know. Please put all of your questions down in the question box. So you'll see at the bottom of your screen, you'll be able to hit questions. Please pop them all in there so we'll be able to get in. Right, let's get on with it. I'm going to share my screen with you now and just talk about a little bit of the housekeeping tonight. You're going to get this whole webinar for free. We're going to do a Q&A session at the end. So if you've got any specific questions, we'll answer that there. Though, of course, we can't dig into too specifically into anybody's situation. We're going to do some polls and this is being recorded and uh, you will get this sent out tomorrow. We don't send out the slides, just so you know. One other thing. Please make sure that you send all your messages, your chit-chat to both panellists and attendees. The reason I ask that is it means that everybody listening tonight, we can help answer each other's questions if us three get distracted bickering with one another. <laughs> now you might be wondering, why should I listen to these guys? How can these guys tell me about how to buy my first home? Now here's the thing, if you haven't met Andrew and I before, we run New Zealand's number one business podcast, The Property Academy. We've actually had over 2.7 million downloads and on top of that we also own uh, Informed Investor, New Zealand's only investment magazine. We print over 10,000 copies of that per quarter and if you're also interested, on top of that we also own Property Investor magazine. Now I don't say any of that to brag. This isn't to make ourselves feel good. I just want you guys to know that we know a thing or two about property and we're in this game every single day. So you can have a bit of confidence that the stuff you're going to learn, it's very current and it's up to date with how to buy your first home in 2022. Now, if you don't know me, Ed McKnight, I'm an economist here at Opus Partners, host that lovely podcast you can see there, and I'm a property investor. My colleague Andrew, sitting on the other side, he is a financial advisor and managing director here at Opus, hosts the Property Academy podcast, and is both a homeowner and a property investor. We might get into the difference a little later on. And look, the rose between the thorns tonight is Miss Sammy Morrison. The first time we've had her on one of our webinars. She is what we call a first home property partner. So every day she's helping first home buyers make some decisions, get into their first homes here in Aotearoa, New Zealand. She's helped 82 Aucklanders buy their first home over the last couple of years and is a homeowner herself. Now, here's the thing. When we first advertised this webinar, quite, you know, and we started doing these seminars probably about two years ago, I remember someone, Ben, actually commented on our was Facebook that, uh, ad. His name was actually Ben. No, it was actually Ben. Have I, uh, I'm not even sure if I've blanked that out. But <laughs> Ben commented, there are no special tricks to buying your first home. It's just savings. Now, here's the thing. We commented back, we 100% agree. 
There are no special tricks at these webinars. There are no special tricks when it comes to the seminars and the information we'll provide you and with actually, tonight. And I'll just, I'll just um, remind anyone, if you did come along, if you're lucky enough to come along to those wild days before COVID where we'd actually have people in a room um, and get, play all with wine, uh, Ed would actually ride in on his bike and then he'd make some member of the audience hold up a, a um, what are those things called, hula hoop, and then he'd pretend like he was going to ride through it and then and he'd stop right at the last minute and say, there are no special tricks here, much to everyone's disappointment. I'd get up on the bike on the table later on and show there were some special tricks. <laughs> well, there aren't going to be any special tricks at tonight's webinar, but what I can tell you there will be is you are going to learn the tried and true basics of how to buy your first time, and we're going to take you through three really dead simple rules. Things you can actually take away and start applying straight away when it comes to buying your first home. Now, Sammy, I know that you it gets up your goat, doesn't it, when people say stuff like this. When I bought my first home, it cost me just $50,000. So, look, someone like your nan is going to tell you this, or maybe someone like Andrew Nichol, who bought his first home at the age of five. Um, <laughs> things have changed. It doesn't work that way anymore. Um, and things are different these days. And I think that's the thing. They always say, oh, things were different back <laughs> then. You know, it was so much easier to do it. And the thing is that things were different back then. I want to show you a really cool graph, which, you know, it's just going to show you how much things have changed. Hopefully everyone's going to drink at home before you show them this graph. <laughs> well, since the year 2000, you can see the change in both Auckland incomes and Auckland house prices here. And the key message is that Auckland house prices have increased over twice as fast as incomes. Incomes are up just about 2.3 times. They've gone from 60k in terms of household incomes to 140k. But oh, look at the house prices. That's gone from just over 240 up over five times to 1.3 mil. I mean, it's enough to make you want to vote for the Green Party. <laughs> but what the key thing I want to say is that when someone says, back in my day, you know, back in my day, we didn't eat smashed avo on toast. Back in my day, we didn't go out on Friday night. Back in my day, we saved hard. Back in my day, this, back in my day, that. What you've got to remember is that things were different back then. And I think there are two key things that we really want to say, right, Sammy? And also, if you, if you don't have a time machine, tough luck. <laughs> like, so, but look, I always argue with it, um, with Ed about this. It's just it's not about age; it's about stage. So your life stage might be different now. Things are different. You know, we've we've travelled. We're not all having kids at the age of nineteen. Oops. Um, <laughs> or some of us are. Um, but you know, things are things are different. You're going travelling. You you know you're, you're focusing on work, and your age and stage might be different from when you're ready to buy a house. And actually, one stat that I love talking about. Back in the day, and I'm talking the 70s here, the average age that a guy got married was 24. Average age for a girl was 22. Today, it's nine years older. The average age for a guy is 33. The average age for a girl is 31. Not long now, Ed. <laughs> I've got another five years, Andrew. But the key point I just want to say there for you guys listening and watching tonight is that 
things are different. We settle down later in life. We make financial decisions later on in life. So don't feel bad if you're not in your first home yet because that's okay. That's what tonight's about, trying to get in the position where you can. And the other thing, I'll say it again, things were different back then. Now, that takes us on, to, though, to the fact that despite all of this, despite the fact that house prices are up faster and are growing faster than incomes, first-home buyers are still making it happen. Yeah, and this is the really interesting thing. Um, the press would have you believe that it's all those people that deal with me, all those nasty property investors that are pushing you poor people uh, first home buyers out of the market but it's actually not true so the stats show that there are more first home buyers now active than there have ever been so that's really awesome so it does show that there's been some positive stuff come out of um, the government changes they are trying their very best to make it easier for first home buyers and the amount of support that you get as a first home buyer uh, compared to my day um, <laughs> is a lot greater which is awesome and what this shows, just for everybody at home, that red line shows the percentage of first of properties, the percentage of properties that are being sold to first home buyers. So back in December or November 2021, it had an all-time high of about one in four properties. One in four properties sold were going to first home buyers. And what a great thing that is. And could you believe, could you believe that that's higher than back in 2006 when property prices were much lower? So I'm not trying to tell you it's easy. It's definitely hard. It's always been hard. But first home buyers, you're able to do it. And we're seeing that out there. And so our main question is, how can we help you do that today? Now, there are three big things we're going to talk about in this webinar. We're going to kick it off by saying, well, can I afford a house? What's the finance of getting a mortgage? Then we're going to talk about how to buy your first home in 2022. And we're going to wrap it up by talking about real properties, actual properties that first home buyers are buying today. We're going to show you ones that have already been bought. We're going to show you ones that are currently available on the market today. But Andrew, you are a former mortgage broker. So take us through what people need to do to figure out if they can purchase their first home today. And we'll delve more into this later on, particularly around the afford affordability side of things. But first off, you need a deposit. So you need to have saved some money or, or you need to have some money to put towards to put towards your purchase because the bank wants some skin in the game from you. Then the bank's going to look at your income and see what you can afford and the combination of those two factors will decide how much a mortgage you can take out. Now that's really important because mortgage equals the amount of house you can buy normally because the mortgage is going to make up the vast majority of your purchase price. So your deposit and your mortgage equals your purchase price. So Got a pop quiz and I can't hear your answer. When does $1 equal five? And this is the whole concept of leverage, which we talk a lot about with investors all the time. So you put in some money, the bank puts in some money. So for every dollar that you put in as a first-time buyer, if you're working on a 20% deposit, the bank will lend you another four. So you've got $5 worth of purchasing power. So a dollar in from you, $4 in from the bank, $5 worth of purchasing power. Obviously, $5 doesn't get you much unless you live in, where are you from? Harwara. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, you, you, you obviously get more of a deposit to get a. Now, the really interesting thing, and um, I was surprised at the stat, that one in three first-time buyers purchased 
with a less than 20% deposit in December 21. That means that two and three had 20% or more, which is actually huge. Like, to have 20% deposit is a big deal. I start, My first house was a 5% deposit, and that was back when properties were $50,000. Things were different back then, Andrew. <laughs> That's the key thing to mean. And I actually want to jump in there because you are right. Two, it, there are a record percentage of first home buyers buying and two and three are getting that 20% deposit. And we'll show you the ways that you can do that and maybe some factors in play there. But still, even though the Reserve Bank, Bank have changed, changed the LVR restrictions, and we'll let you know what those are later on, but that's effectively guiding the amount of deposit you're going to need even though they've made it tougher to buy with, say, a 10% deposit, one in three first-home buyers still making that happen, which yeah. is the really interesting thing. But there are some differences, Andrew, between people's ability to get a 10% deposit loan versus a 20% deposit loan. Can you just explain yeah. those for me? So, look, if, if you are going to try and apply for a loan with a 10% deposit, that is still possible. It's not as common as it used to be, and it might get easier with the uh, repeal of the triple CFA potentially, but uh, you can go to non-bank lenders and, and there are banks that will potentially still do a loan based on a 10% deposit. But you've got to be a golden client. Basically, got to be a couple of dentists. I mean, the chat would be terrible over the dinner table. Um, no kids, no debts, no life. But you can possibly get it. If you've got a 20% deposit, it opens the doors to more lenders. You'll often get a lower interest rate. You'll get better uh, uh, better terms with the bank. They'll give you kind of cashbacks and stuff like that. And they'll allow you to have a kid and maybe one person with just a regular paid job and stuff like that. Well, it's all very well talking about a 10% or a 20% deposit, what you've actually got to do is be able to pull that deposit together to begin with. So that's what we're going to dig in now. And I want to introduce you to what we call the Fast Five. Now, these are the five ways that you are potentially able to pull your deposit together. Now, some of these are going to be simple. Some of these are going to be so obvious. Some of these have a little bit more to them. So I want to take you through now the fast five and just keep in mind what you might, how these might apply to you sitting at home. Now I'm going to take you through a case study as well. So as we go through the fast five, this is what we're thinking about and we'll take you through it. I'm thinking about a couple based in Auckland, One's age 30, one's age 26, and I've got a combined income of 140k. So they might both be on 70, one might be on 80, one might be on 60. There could be a range, obviously. But this is what we're going to base the numbers we're going to show you off in a moment. Now, the first of those fast five is KiwiSaver. And Sammy, you're going to talk to us about this. Woohoo! Um, I'm a massive KiwiSaver fan. I think everyone should be making the most of it. So look, um, obviously we've got different levels of contribution that you can have with KiwiSaver. I would recommend strongly that you try and take it up to 10% if that is an option for you, um, leading up to looking at buying a house. Not um, personalised financial advice. Not <laughs> personalised financial advice. Um, but you do need to be aware of a couple of things. So you do need to be a regular contributor for at least three years. That's really important. That does actually catch a few people out. Um, people tend to think it's two years for some reason. Um, you do need to keep... Um, $1,000 remaining in your KiwiSaver account as well. And this is your one shot at using this for a house. So you don't get another chance to use it for your second house, your third house or your fourth. This is your one shot at using it. So yeah, make sure it's the right decision for you. 
I think that's um, really important as well. Sometimes what people will do is um, uh, they they might decide, hey, I'm not going to buy my own house right now. What I am happy to do is I'm happy to go in on an investment deal with my good mate Ed. We'll buy a nice house and we'll rent it out. Um, and then I'm going to use my KiwiSaver later on. Then I go to apply to withdraw my KiwiSaver and they say, no, no, no. I know you've found your perfect house that you want to um, raise your kids in. You've already owned a house. You can't use that money. So that can trick people. Um, and sometimes, also, if you're the beneficiary of a trust which owns a house, so you've got to be really careful. You've also actually got to live in it for six months as well, so that kind of is a bit of a... Bit of a yeah, but anyone can live in a house for six months. <laughs> now, did you tell them that you got to leave $1,000 in there? Yes, I did. Oh, good. I was, I was yeah, rustling with my notes <laughs> while I was doing that. Well... What we're going to say for this couple who earn 140k and you know have been in the workforce probably for one's probably four year uh, four years the other's probably about eight years we're going to say person one's got a 50k KiwiSaver person two's 40k now bear in mind to take out 50k you've got to have 51k in there to take out 40k you've got to have 41k in there so we're going to assume for these guys 90k total KiwiSaver very round numbers isn't it. Well, we've done it for examples in this case to show the the range that you might use. Now, obviously, 90K, not going to get you much in total. That would get you a max of 450 if you're using a, a good old 20% deposit. So we've got to look at some other ways to get that deposit together. And Sammy, you're going to talk to us about government support. Yep, sure. So we've got a couple of different options here. Um, one that I do like on occasion um, is the First Home Buyers Grant. So the positives of the First Home Buyers Grant is it's got quite a big income cap. So together you can earn 150k, or as an individual you can earn 95k. Now for someone who's never heard of the First Home Grant before, yeah. just explain how magical this can be before we tell you about <laughs> some of the instances where it might not be useful. Yeah. So you would be eligible if you're in that income cap and you've find, found your, your dream home, um, you'd be eligible for up to $10,000 each as a top up from the government. So they're going to give you money for your deposit. When do you pay it back? Oh, you just run. It's yours now. You no, never pay it you back. Never pay it back. That's it's amazing. Awesome. Yeah. So. But there is a major <laughs> so. catch that everybody at home who's researched this uh, will be aware of. Yeah, look, it is. It's disappointing, I guess, um, from my perspective, that the the cap is so low for houses. So it's a six nine nine cap for a house price in Auckland. So it's a little bit difficult to find a first home in Auckland for six nine nine. We try. We occasionally find them, but it, that's it's a bit of a deterrent for most first-time buyers. And actually, what else is important to note is that it's 700k for a new build, 625k for an existing property. So this yeah. is one of the areas, and I see somebody's asked in the questions as well about new builds, which we'll definitely answer throughout the webinar. This is one of the benefits of potentially going with a new build because you've got a higher house price cap. Now, 700k house price cap, I know what you're all thinking because I live in Auckland, Sammy lives in Auckland as well. What am I going to get for that? We'll show you an example later on, but it's absolutely tough. It's it's a rare property that's going to meet that, even though it does sometimes happen. Now, there's also another type of government support that I want to briefly talk about, which is the First Home Partner Programme. 
Correct. So the first time partner program is um, a little bit lower with the income cap. So together you can only earn up to 130. So this couple, this case study here, actually would um, not be eligible for that. Um, but it becomes the government becomes an equity partner in your house, so they top up your deposit. So you can take up to 20%. We did a podcast on 25%. This 25%. Yeah. So Ed and I actually did a podcast a couple of weeks ago. So they're all available on our website. Uh, do you know what number it was? Eight hundred and ninety-six or yeah. something, and um, Chris from Landley Law came and spoke about his process of buying his first home and using the government as a partner, um, which which is an awesome thing. And so again, you don't pay them an interest rate on that; you just pay them out their percentage when you sell the property at a later date or buy them out. And he got a hundred and twenty k from the government for his first home. It was the bulk of his deposit by far. Now, even though this couple here would be under the first home grant income cap, we're going to assume that the property they're buying in Auckland is more expensive than 700k if they're purchasing new, and therefore we're not going to count it, even though they'd come under that cap. And there are some other things. You've got uh, the amount you get from the government depends on how many years you've been in the KiwiSaver scheme as well. All of that information is widely available online. Now, Andrew... Oh no, this is me. We're yeah. going to talk about sale of assets. Now, this is a really interesting one, actually, and one that works for some people, doesn't work for others. So one option that we sometimes forget about is often over time we've accumulated stuff. Now, that might be a car. It might be some other sort of assets. I mean, in some cases, it might be uh, uh, some a sort child. of fixed... A child. <laughs> They're a liability, not an asset. But there is an option... If you're really struggling to get that deposit together to sell a car or sell some sort of asset, if you can, to get that deposit up. And I want to give you a really good example of when that might be the case. Let's say you're buying a new build, you and your partner, and both of you have cars. Well, with a lot of new builds these days, there might only be one car park available when you go and purchase that new build. So one thing that we see some first-home buyers do is go from a two-car household down to a one-car household and they're using the, the funds from the sale of that car as part of their deposit. You don't have to necessarily do it straight away. You can do it coming up to settlement. There are some things to think about, but it is an option. Again, won't be the right fit for everyone, but could fit for some. Just one note on that as well. If you do go from a two-car household to a one-car household, it will also help with your lending application from a servicing uh, perspective most of the time as well. So banks look at how much you're spending on your car. So fuel, warrant fitness, all those kind of things. If you have that cost, that's going to improve your ability to borrow money from the bank. It's about $50 a week difference that the bank will uh, include. So that's pretty cool. Now that comes on... In this case, I am actually going to include it in this first home buyer situation. We're going to say, person one, they're going to sell their car, they're going to get 10k in this situation. Person two, they're not going to do that. They're still going to have one car in their household, but because whatever they're buying might only have one car park, sweet, there we go. That comes on to number four of the Fast Five. Now, this is the bank of mum and dad. So... If any of you have got some really nice parents that like you still, um, despite you staying with them over university and um, they trust you enough to uh, help you out with this, you can talk to them about lending you some money. Now, you'll be immediately thinking, my parents don't have a bunch of money to give me, which is absolutely fine and quite normal. So uh, th this is something that I think people... Uh, uh, 
uh, it's hard to get enough information around this. And the word guarantee scares the hell out of most parents because you'll hear all these horror stories of the way that it used to be where you'd guarantee the whole mortgage. That's not what we're suggesting at all. What we're suggesting is that um, rather than mum and dad write you out a cheque for $50,000 or whatever they can help you out with, you actually just use some of their unused equity in their house and they help support your deposit amount. So let's show you an example. Mum and dad, no tea in that, have a house there of $800,000 and then we've got... Where's not the T? P A R E N T. Okay, I just blind. <laughs> <laughs> Look, back in my day, houses were fifty thousand dollars. Right next. <laughs> Sorry about that, team. Um, mortgage of two hundred thousand dollars. The equity there, the equity that mum and dad have in their house is six hundred thousand dollars. Now. Again, we're not asking mum and dad to sell their house. We're not asking them to write a cheque. All we're asking them to do is to co-loan a deposit for you. So in this case, we'll say $20,000. So you get a, a loan of $20,000 in your name and their name against their house. And then that contributes towards your deposit. So that $20,000 times five is means that you've got... It's changed to 40 magically. So 40,000 turns to 160 worth of borrowing against the new property. So if you manage to get $40,000 against mum and dad's house, that gives you a full 200,000 worth of purchasing power towards your new property. Now, we're not saying that this 200K and this ability to use bank of mum and dad is available for everyone. Obviously, it's not, uh, because if your parents don't own a house, then you can't do this. But it is an option and a genuine option that a lot of Aucklanders are doing. I think about 50%, I read a mortgage broker say, 50% of first-home buyers are doing this in some shape or form. So whether you're in the 50% who does or the 50% who doesn't, that's okay either way. And just to clarify as well, if mum and dad are watching this at the moment, the 160 in this example, that's secu- in this example, is secured against the kids' house, that the new property, the forty thousand dollars, the deposit. That's what's secured against mum and dad's house. That's the maximum amount that they're on the hook for if the kids skip the country and run to Vegas. Well, let's come across and see what these first home buyers would do in this situation. Now, we're going to say person one is not going to use the bank of mum and dad. We're going to suggest in this case, the younger person, the 26-year-old, is going to use 40K from bank of mum and dad, so total of 40. And I'll tell you why that might be the case in a second after Sammy introduces Fast Five number five. Savings. (laughs) This is a bit of a foreign word for me, Um, but we're learning. Um, so savings these days could be anything, stocks, it could be genuine savings. Um, Crypto. I've got that on my piece of paper. <laughs> I, I was reading it. grief about that. <laughs> <No> um, <tea>. <laughs> <laughs> honestly, honestly, should have gone to spec savers. Um, so typically we're seeing people come through with anywhere between 10 and 40k. I mean, 40k is a Pretty, Huge pretty, amount of savings. Pretty impressive, pretty impressive um, number. So. Louis Vuitton would have you down there quicker <laughs> than you hit 10. <laughs> Come on, kids, we've got to teach the oh, first home buyers. <laughs> 
So, so oh, you're done with Savix. You're done with Savix. She didn't have anything to say about Savix. But it could be your sharesies. It could be some crypto. It could be something else. Let's check out these first home buyers. They're going to, uh, person one's going to use 20K in this instance. Person two's not going to do any. Now, now I, I just, just want to show you the totals. So, person one has put in a total of 80K. Person two has put in a total of 80K. They've got 160 in total. Now, the reason I suggested that person two might use some bank of mum and dad is that in this instance, we've got an uneven situation. Now, what I mean by that is person one has got a total on their own of 80K. Person two on their own only has 40k. Now to even out that uh, couple wanting to purchase together, sometimes that's where the bank of mum and dad might come in and help person two out so that it is 50-50. That doesn't always have to be the case, but it's something we sometimes see. Now once we've gone through that, the big question is what can you do with your 160k? Andrew, walk us through this. So 160k, that's your Dollar, remember we spoke about before. Now, you multiply that by five, you get 800,000. That's what's called your purchasing power. And so the blue, the big blue block there, the difference is the 640 you're going to get from the bank. So again, if you've got a 20% deposit, you multiply your deposit amount by four, that gives you the bank, or you multiply it by five to give you purchasing power. So 160 plus 640 from the bank, multiplied by four, equals 800. The 160 multiplied by 5 is your total purchasing power. And look, let's be honest, you can get quite a few options in Auckland for that. Which we're going to talk about later on in this webinar. Now, one thing that's really important to know is this dead simple rule. This is what I'm going to cover. So, again, if you're working on a 20% deposit, for every dollar you've got, you multiply it by 5 to give you purchasing power. If you are in a position where you've got really good income, really low debt, really low lifestyle costs, then potentially you can borrow 90% still. Again, I wouldn't hang my hand on it, and you are going to pay a bit more for it, which we'll talk about later, but you can multiply your dollar by 10. So if you've got 100,000 times 10, as, uh, sorry, yeah, 100,000 is a million dollars in that case. Now, just remember... You don't need to use all of these fast five rules. You don't have to use all of them, but you do have to do something. People have to actually want to achieve this and want to actually get ahead and buy their first time, and it is going to require some sacrifices. And um, I know it is really hard buying your first house because it is hard for everyone. Unless, you, unless you've got uber-rich parents, and let's face it, none of us here do, then the chances are you are going to have to make some sacrifices to get there. But it's such a big, uh, awesome thing when you do achieve it. Fantastic. But it doesn't mean you have to sell your car and use your KiwiSaver and get a whole heap of money off your parents no, and not. get money off the government and everything car. like that. No, 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 no. Now... Now that we've talked about the deposit side, I want to come over to the income side because this is the part that a lot of people ask about. Cool, you know, I might be able to get a bank loan, but am I going to be able to afford it? How do I get them to say yes? Now, how much income do you need? Now, I'm going to give you a ballpark. This is not always going to work, and I've got a warning that's about to come up that says this is a ballpark. But what you can do if you're using a 20% deposit, take your household income, multiply it by seven, this will give you an approximation of how much you might be able to borrow. And this assumes, just so you know, that 
your theory, you've got very low debts. You don't have a whole heap of credit cards. You don't have a whole heap of missed payments to your power company that you're pretty clean from a banking perspective. Uh, now, if we took that 140k household income and assumed that you know they were in that clean situation, no student loans, no other debts, their approximate mortgage that they might be able to afford in this case is about 980. Now, given that they needed something with a six in front of it, hey, look, yes, purchasing that 800k probably would be affordable. You'll scream through. Now, this is only if you're using a 20% deposit. And of course, again, I'm going to give you this warning, this is a ballpark only. So don't take your income, multiply it by seven. Go into BNZ. Go into <laughs> BNZ and say, two really attractive guys and a woman named Sammy told me I'm going to be able to borrow seven times my income, I'll have a mortgage, please. Because that's not necessarily how it's going to work. But this is to give you a ballpark. Now, if you're using a lower deposit, if you're on 10% or if you've got some student loan debt, if you do have a bit of credit card debt, hey, here is a different option for you. Take your household income, multiply it by six. For these guys, hey, they're still likely to get that 640k mortgage because by this, they're probably able to get somewhere around 840 if they had a bit of debt there. Now, just to give you a bit of a comparison, use six times your income if you've got some student loans, if you've got some credit card debt, use the seven times your personal income if you're using a 20% deposit and you've got very low or no other debt. So if you've got no debt against your car, if you've got no student loan, none of those kinds of things. Now this is important because if you are using, for instance, a 10% deposit, you are going to pay a higher interest rate. If you use a 20% deposit or more, you're going to get a lower interest rate. We're going to tell you a bit about that in a second, which is what Andrew's going to talk about. Now, come back to those people. Did they have enough deposit? Did they have enough income? Could they afford the 800k house? Yes, they could in that instance. Now, I just want to give you one other way to think about this because it works the other way too. Let's say you're looking at a house and you love it. This is the house for you and you think you're going to use a 10% deposit. You think you're going to need a 600k mortgage. What you can do is take that mortgage, divide it by six, that's how much household income you're going to need. Same thing if you're using a 20% deposit, 700k, divided by seven, because we don't have a lot of debts, we're using a 20% deposit, 100k household income. So this is just another one of those dead simple rules that you can use just to get a ballpark. If you're just starting out, we've got the deposit one that Andrew talked about, this is the income one. Six times your household income, that's a 10% deposit or more debt. Seven times your income, 20% deposit or low debt. And I think also it's quite good to know these numbers as well when you're aiming for something. So if today isn't the day that you're going to buy your first house, to know where you need to be from an income perspective in two years' time when you want to buy a house or or you know that's your, that's your D-Day, then um, at least that gives you something to work towards. You can go into your boss's office and ask for a raise and make sure that you're going to land on that hundred thousand dollars that you require by by the time that you apply for a loan don't get any ideas either of you two <laughs> so the next thing that we, we need, need to talk, talk about, about is how do i know what my mortgage repayment is going to be and that, that we've got a great rule for you this is great stuff andrew <laughs> take us through it i like that you're trying to scream with a block of ice in your mouth i, don't I know, hope why, people why would have noticed you, why would you put a piece of ice in your mouth before you start talking <laughs> right so just, 
just in terms of a rule of thumb of what you're going to pay in today's market, if you have a 20% deposit, or more, then you're probably going to pay a 4% interest rate. If you've got less than a 20% deposit, then it's probably going to be a 5% interest rate. Now, it's quite complicated to figure out what a um, table loan repayment works out to be. Um, in fact, I guarantee you, most of your brokers, if you ring them up or, or a banker and said, hey, what would my repayment be on a loan of $639,000? They'll have to use a mortgage calculator. I'm going to teach you how to do it now Anytime you want. So if you're at an open home and you want to work out what your repayments will be, what the actual repayments, not the interest, the repayments on a 30-year term, weekly payments, this is how you do it. So you take the mortgage amount and divide it by 1,000, or if you just you know go 680K, times 1.1, 1.1, this is for 4%. That will give you your weekly mortgage payment amount on a 30-year term, principal and interest. So let's use an example. 720000 so 720K. So if you put 720 in your calculator, make it really quick, 720 times 1.1 equals $792 per week. So again, just to recap on that, so forget about the zeros and the thousand, 720, 720,000 is just 720, 720 times 1.1 equals 792, which means $792 per week. You've done it that quick. Now that's assuming a 30-year mortgage term, right? If only I said that three times already. Oh, I wasn't listening, sorry. Yeah, well, let's <laughs> let's imagine that we're now using a lower deposit. Now, you're not always going to necessarily pay a 5% interest rate, but I wanted to give you an option as well. How does this work, Andrew? And also, if you're conservative and you want to budget and you head for a little bit higher, now you're going to do the exact same thing, but you're going to multiply it by 1.25, not the 1.1, 1.25. I, I know I'm reiterating this, but I just want to make sure it sticks in your head so that you've got it anytime you need it. So 720 times 1.25 equals a flat $900, $900 per week. It's that easy. Now, in actual fact, it's slightly lower than this, but it gets, you, it, it gets you in the right ballpark. So what I want to take you through, Andrew, what is dead simple rule number three? So if you want to work out what your payments are, 4% on a 30-year term, one times 1.1, so 720 times 1.1, or if you want to work on the 5%, it's 1.25, and it works in reverse as well. So if you say, hey, I can afford $1,000 a week, and I think I'm going to get a 4% interest rate, you can go 1,000 divided by 1.1, that will give you your amount of thousands that you can borrow. Well, that assumes that your servicing test rate is 4%, but we won't dig into that too much. No, it that doesn't. That's much. the repayment. That's the repayment that you can afford. So if you can afford that repayment, $1,000 per week. Don't get me started on this. We're not going to have a debate in front of the well, no, it's correct. I didn't say whether Hello, or not you Mama can Dad. service it. Right, okay. Now, let's go on. We've talked about some really cool rules. Three dead simple rules. We've talked about one about your deposit. Multiply by five, multiply by ten. We've talked about your income. Multiply by six, multiply by seven. We've now got this really cool one, which we're bickering on about. <laughs> now it's time. We've got the finance sorted. Let's just jump into how to buy your first home in 2022. But before we do that, I want to take you back in history, back to the house that I grew up in. 
Now, this is a house. This is where it all went. Yeah, well done. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure if I can say what I'm thinking at the moment. Because I think you know what I'm thinking, Andrew. Now, this is a real-life Google Maps screenshot of the house I grew up oh, in. For any of the first-home buyers that are watching that didn't know how Google Earth worked. <laughs> now, what I want to tell you here is this is the first home that my parents bought, which is in Harwater, a tiny town of about... 10,000 people. Now, what I want to let you know is even though it looks like a great house, it was a dive when they bought it. They had to do so much building works and repainting and re-wallpapering and re-carpeting. And if uh, cameras had been invented back in the day, <laughs> I'd show you photos of the inside. Unfortunately, they weren't. Now, the key message that I want to share with you here, other than, hey, this looks like quite a nice home, but bear in mind that uh, <laughs> it's a six-hour commute to Auckland, your first home, I need to tell you this, your first home is not your forever home. Yeah, this is a bit of a cliche, but it's so true. It is so true. I just think it's about changing the narrative. I think, you know, often we're like, okay, what do we want? What do we want for our first time? But it's actually, what can we do? What can we do for our first time? I think it's it's kind of a cute little saying, but I think your first home is two steps away from your dream home. So your first time you might not necessarily love, but it should make you money. And it should make you money to get towards those two steps to get towards your dream home. Two steps pretty quickly. I mean... But that's two uh, houses purchased. So if I'm dreaming of the white picket fence and the pool in the backyard and the four bedrooms with the two bathrooms and the three little kitties running around, three. that might be, <laughs> don't tell my mum, she'll get too excited, <laughs> but that could be two house purchases away. At least, I would say. Oh, in my experience, no, I think no, I think it's at least. You're shattering my dreams. Just because <laughs> it's really it, there. Just because it took you thirty nine, Andrew, to get into <laughs> oh, your first time. <laughs> now, what you've got to think as well, once you've got that, is think about whether you're going to buy a new build or an existing property. And this is something I've seen in the chat quite a bit. Just briefly take us through the differences, Andrew. Between new versus existing. Between new for existing. For first-home buyers. Well, I think, look, at the end of the day, whilst when you buy an existing property, you tend to get a bit more land. This is probably what our parents typically bought, so quarter-acre section, an older house. You are going to pay more in maintenance. You're probably going to get something a bit further out of town, generally speaking, or you know, in the suburbs. Um, when you're buying newer... Generally speaking, that's how you can get around with a lower deposit. You don't always have to pay your entire deposit right now, which is probably a big thing as well. And you're going to get a more condensed house, but usually a better designed house. So, um, again, I'm thinking back to some of my parents' first homes. Um, you know, there was a lot of hallways, a lot of wasted space and stuff like that. Nowadays, we have a really open plan living area and a townhouse or something like that. And then you've got the bedrooms with bathrooms. Another big difference, and this is really important, is that new builds have tax incentives if you're going to turn this property into a rental property. A lot of the first home buyers we work with here at Opus Partners and Opus First Home are purchasing a property which, you know, maybe in two years they might say, you know what, I'm going to turn it into a rental property. And so purchasing a new build which has some tax incentives can be a real benefit as well for those. Uh, yeah, the, the other thing to that is if they're going to sell it to an investor later on, those invest uh, those, those are um, uh, tax uh, um, benefits can be passed on to a new owner for 20 years. 
Now, what I just want to dig into and let you know is that here at Opus Partners and Opus First Home, we only deal with new builds when working with first home buyers. So the examples we're going to show you tonight are only new builds. We're big fans of them for a whole heap of reasons, which we can dig more into. But I just wanted to let you know that before we get into the case studies. The next thing you want to think about is whether you're going to buy a house or a townhouse and what you can realistically do right now. And Sammy, talk to us about this. But we um, we actually do both um, for our first home buyers. We've, we've we've helped quite a few first home buyers um, do a house and land package. Um, you do typically have to go a little bit further out of the inner city if you're looking at a, a house and land just for price. Um, the townhouses, my favourite. Um, now, what I was talking to someone the other day, and they said something really interesting. Or did I say it? I never know. Um, they <laughs> probably them. Said, no, that was me. Um, they were saying how it's land prices that are driving, you know, driving up a lot of the cost of houses in Auckland. And so what they have said about townhouses is that they've just flipped a typical house on its side and utilised the airspace instead of the land space. So this works really well if you're going to find a townhouse development that's got a lot of shared space. So, you know, playgrounds and parks and barbecue areas. That's actually a really, really positive thing, I think, to think about. Fantastic. And what we're going to do is... I think in today's webinar, we haven't got an example of a standalone house, but we do operate in both within the Auckland market, and I think that's important to note as well. Now, now that we've talked a little bit about the options out there, I just want to get straight into the case studies. I want to get straight into the real properties that first-home buyers are buying today. And Sammy, talk to us about this Mangare property and what a first-home buyer has done here. This is one that you've really worked with. Yeah, yeah, I've actually helped quite a few um, first-time buyers into this particular development. Um, we were really excited to work with this developer. We know they've got a great reputation, but look at the price. You're actually coming in under the first-time buyer's grant cap. So a lot of these buyers who were not eligible before were actually able to come in and access that first-time buyer's grant, which made a world of difference. This development was purely um, sold to first-time buyers as well, so you're actually living... And in amongst <laughs> um, fellow first-time buyers, creating a bit of a sense of community as well. Um, and yeah, look, it's just been a fantastic option for, for quite a few buyers that we've helped out here. And a really cool developer that we've worked with for a number of years. Um, they, they just have a passion with fir helping first-time buyers. Ed is constantly on his case, trying to trick his way into buying a uh, first-home, but but um, Jason's not going to let him uh, at all. That's right. So this was CETA Developments. And I, I tried to, I kept so, oh, I've got to get in this, but he wouldn't let me, unfortunately. Now, your client here, Sammy, the one you helped out that I, I want to take you through, they've used dead simple rule number one and used a 10% deposit, so needed 70K. Now, just walk us through how they pulled that together. Yep, so they had KiwiSaver, obviously, that 30K KiwiSaver contribution. Um, they did get access to that first-time buyer's grant, which made a big difference. Was that one person that uh, managed to get it? Um, we've helped out quite a few people here, but in this particular... No, um, yeah, one, one of the partners is what yes. I mean. Sorry, yep, sorry, Mike. Mike one of the partners. Sorry. So so right. in that instance, so say, for example, someone doesn't qualify for the first-time buyer's grant as a couple, if one of them still qualifies, it's great, they can still get that. No, not sure. I don't know. Okay, can, fine. Okay. And then they've used 10K worth of savings and 20K of the bank of mum and dad. Now, of course, if they're going to do that and use a 10% deposit, we need to apply the six times multiple for the income. So once we take off the deposit from the 699K purchase price, they need 
629k mortgage. Now, if you divide it by six, I just want to give you a ballpark on the household income they'd need to have as a minimum in order to do this again as a ballpark. So 105k is kind of the minimum of what they'd need to be earning in this instance. Now, on top of that, let's look at what their mortgage would cost. Let's apply dead simple rule number three, which was if they're going to be paying a 5% interest rate, 629 multiply by 1.25, hey, their weekly mortgage payment, ballpark, 785k. So I wanted to show you these just so you can really see, hey, there are these, the three dead simple rules, we're actually seeing them apply in practice, and we're going to do that for both of the next two case studies. Now, this property, the one in Mangarei, that has actually gone, and I believe it's all sold out now, is it? Uh, we've got a couple of options left. The All of the 699 options have now gone, um, but we do have a couple more two and three bedroom options available. Well, let's look at some other stuff that's available on the market now. Talk to us about this one, Sammy. This is a beautiful um, development. I'm a little bit biased. My sister's actually just bought here. Um, if you're watching, Olivia, hello. Um, this is a gorgeous development. They've got a lot of shared space here, beautiful designs, opposite a massive park, really close to some very, very good schools as well and public transport. So a really nice village-type feel here. And that's one of the really interesting things now, that you see a lot of... Um, shared space, common areas, playgrounds, stuff like that. And so you really do get a community feel and you'll have a good mix of investors and first home buyers in this type of development. So I really like the the um, tone that the developers are trying to achieve here. So what's the price on this? 859K, I think that's for the three bed, one yes. bath, one car park. And if you're going to buy it, for example, with a 20% deposit, you're going to need a cool 172K. Now, Sammy, walk us through an example of a couple who, you know, what would they need to do from the deposit side using the Fast Five to purchase something like this? Great. So we actually had a whopping $120,000 KiwiSaver contribution. Um, $20,000 currently from Cheersies and twenty k from one of them um, for the, from the Bank of Mum and Dad. Now, hang on, that doesn't add up to 172000 I actually didn't do the math on this one. <laughs> <laughs> no. So well, actually, <laughs> here's the thing with this one, and this is um, something that's great when you are buying off plans. You only have to commit your 10% deposit when you go unconditional. Now, you have to be in a position to be able to save the balance of whatever your deposit is. So in this case, what are we, 162K. So, yeah, we've got to... <laughs> thank you, Ed. Um, you can save... Sorry, no, I miscalculated. $12,000? <laughs> yeah. Oh, we've all made some photos tonight. Yeah, you, the extra twelve or the twelve thousand dollars shortfall here, you can save that between now and settlement of the build. So if this is a twelve month build, you put down your um, you'd put your, down your ten percent deposit now, and then the balance of it you save up between now and completion. So it's a great option if you don't have all of your money right there, right right here and now. Again, you've just got to be certain that you have got the ability to save that money between now and then, and have a backup plan if not. Let's apply some of those other dead simple rules. So let's say they've saved up that additional money. Their mortgage they're going to need to pay, 687k. I'm going to assume that they're pretty clean from other debt perspectives. They don't have a student loan, anything like that. Let's use the seven times multiple. What are they going to need to earn? 
approximate household income of $98,000 in that instance. So this couple need to earn, you know, maybe 50k each, 60k each, that kind of thing in order to purchase that. And if they've saved that much in KiwiSaver, I'd say they'd have at least that. Oh, definitely in that case. Now, what's their mortgage going to cost? We're going to assume the 4% interest rate, 687, uh, six, multiplied by 1.1. Their weekly mortgage repayment ballpark is going to be 756 in that instance. Now, what, let's go on to our next one, which is in Henderson. Yeah, I'll just talk about this last one. Now, these one, uh, these particular townhouses, um, like the previous ones that Sam was talking about, have been really popular for investors because it's a mix of investors and owner-occupiers. And again, this has been appealing to people who say, yeah, this isn't my forever house. This is a great property for me now. It will last me for the next three, five years. Then I'm going to move out and turn it into a rental. If it fits good investment criteria now, then there's no real reason why it won't fit good investment criteria later on the numbers on that ed 829 which is a two bed with a, uh, a bathroom and, and car park and in henderson so great location deposit if you've got 20 percent on that it's 166,000. and if we fast five that 100 from kiwi saver 10 from shares 10 from sale of asset and then let's again say that they save another 46,000 between now and settlement and again, we're not saying that you have to make up your deposit this way. This is just examples of how you might use the Fast Five to bring it all together. Now, let's find out what sort of income would these guys need in order to be able to fund the mortgage for this place. Well, we're going to use a six debt-to-income ratio here. I'm going to assume maybe they've got a student loan, maybe they've got uh, a bit of a car loan, maybe they've got some debt there. That's okay. Let's just use that six times DTI. So 663 is your approximate mortgage after you've paid your deposit. Divide it by six, 111K ballpark what these guys are going to need in order to be able to purchase that. If they're both on 60, then hey, as long as they pass some other bank criteria, you're starting to be in the right ballpark. And I think that's the key thing that a lot of first home yep. buyers just need. Give me the ballpark so I know whether I've got a hope in hell or not. Now let's look at what that mortgage might cost. I'm going to assume a 5% interest rate if they're a bit more conservative, for instance, and have decided to fix for longer. 663 multiplied by 1.25. Hey, their mortgage is going to cost about $828 a week. Now that does not necessarily mean that both partners have to stump up $828. One thing that's obviously quite uh, usual or quite realistic, especially in the Auckland market, is flatmates. So you might purchase your first home that's got two bedrooms. You're a couple. You live in one, the master bedroom, for instance, and then decide to get a flatmate in. Maybe they give you 200 bucks. Maybe they give you 250 a week. Hey, that helps to support your mortgage costs, and the bank will factor some of that in when you're going ahead and applying for that mortgage. And I think even if you're comfortable paying that $828 yourself, what I would encourage people who are highly motivated to get ahead and are buying their first home and you know bringing together all the options they can in their, in their Fast Five, I feel like it's an Enid Blyton book, um, then what you do is you can direct any uh, border income extra into your mortgage as well. And so, you know, another $200 a week is what... Uh, uh, 10 grand a year that you can pay off your mortgage principal, which makes a huge difference later on down the track, particularly if you want to make sure you are using this as your stepping stone.
Now, we've gone through some case studies. We've talked about the finance. We've talked about some ballpark ways to think about new builds versus existing, townhouses versus houses. Now, if you're going to go out and purchase your first home, and we are going to wrap this up within the hour, there's one thing you need. You need the A-team. You need some people behind you. Now, what I mean by that is... This stuff is complex to figure out, especially when you're doing it for the first time. And hey, mum and dad certainly can help you, but they might not have purchased a house for 10 years, and that's cool. They're not there to necessarily be the experts who help you figure it all out. That's where you're calling the A-team. So who might you need? Well, first of all, you might use your, our very own spider woman, somebody like Sammy, as your property partner, as somebody who's going to help you find the house, the right house for you. And we'll tell you more about that in a second. Hey, you're going to need Iron Man. You're going to need your mortgage broker to help you figure out, can I get my mortgage approved? And we've got a team here at Opus Partners, Catalyst Financial. They're great for investors, great for first home buyers to help get that mortgage over the line. They're going to help you a lot. And in fact, over 50% of purchases today are used with a mortgage broker. People are using mortgage brokers rather than going to the bank direct. And actually really popular among millennials and first home buyers. We'll tell you more about that in the Q&A. Last people you need on board, hey, Wonder Woman and Superman, that could be you. That could be you guys getting together, you and your partner, or if you're buying alone, it could be just you, it could be you and your family, but getting everybody on the same page. If you've got to use the bank of mum and dad, it's going to be them. If you're buying with a partner, getting you two both on board. Once you pull everybody together, you're going to be in the position to purchase your home a little more. But what I want to do is tell you a little bit more about the one that you might not know much about, which is our very own spider woman and property partner, Sammy Morrison. Look at her. She is the spider woman right there. And I, I just... have been Wonder Woman, but that's fine. No, no, no. You're, you're not so Wonder Woman. We've got a set way we do this, Sammy. It's not that way. And look, Sammy, if you think you're Wonder Woman, you're, you're fooling, fooling both yourself <laughs> and the hundred odd people listening tonight. That's not the case. And I just want to tell you about what Sammy actually does, which is the Opus First Home Program, just because most of you probably haven't heard about how this works. The First Home Program is all about helping you get your finance approved, and we use Iron Man. Good old Peter Norris and his team at Catalyst Financial in order to get the finance approved. Second thing, find the house. That's the other tough thing as a first home buyer, tracking down the right one for you. And Sammy works with over 58 different developers around the country, 58 different developers, and we'll dig into some case studies if we've got time for in the Q&A about how she does that. So it's about finding the right house for you and then helping you actually buy it. So this is what the first home program's all about, the one that we offer here at Opus, getting the finance approved, finding the house, helping you buy it. What's the big question you're thinking? How much does it cost? Look, there's no charge for it. We don't charge for the first home program, and I'll tell you exactly how that works in a second because it's offered on a completely complimentary basis because you're probably wondering, well, how do you keep the lights on and afford this lovely studio here uh, in our Christchurch office? This is how we get paid. We work with first home buyers. They work with Sammy, find the right house for them. What does Sammy do? She goes out and I hear her. She calls up all 58 developers, tries to find the right house for the first home buyer. Now, if we can do that, if we can find the right developer with the right property for the first home buyers we're working with, we earn a fee from the developer. And that means we don't have to charge first home buyers for that service, exactly the same way we work with investors. 
Now, if you like the sound of that, if you think that sounds pretty good, I wouldn't mind a wee chit-chat with Sammy and helping to find out, uh, get into my first home. Your next step is a half-hour Zoom call with Sammy. Now, let me just be really clear about who this might be the right fit for, who might not be in the right position for this just yet. If you're thinking of purchasing your first home and you think you're realistically in the position to do this in the next six months, or if you've already got a pre-approval, or if you're looking out for a property right now, this could be a really good next step for you. Look, if you're maybe three years away from purchasing your first home, if you're two years away, hey look, we still love you. We still want you to come along to our first home buyer webinars. We still want to help you, but this next step, your half hour Zoom session with Sammy, hey, just not the right fit yet because we're going to talk about how to make it happen over the next six months. Now, what I want to do is I just want to run a little poll and give you the option to say, hey, look, I'm keen for one of those sessions with Sammy. So if you are keen to book in one of those half hour sessions, then I'm going to put something across your screen. If you hit the top one, if you hit yes, then hey, we'll give you a buzz to book that in. If it's not the right time, click the bottom one, you won't get a call. But I'll just put that across your screen now so you've got the ability to come and see us or if it's not the right fit for you or you're not keen, just click the bottom one so we don't call you and you're not thinking, why are you giving me a buzz? That's just so you've got the ability to. Now, while you're doing that, I just want to give you the option for some extra content. If you want to learn more about property, the best way to do that check out the Property Academy podcast because every single day we release a brand new 10 to 15 minute-ish episode to help you become more familiar with property right here in New Zealand. We're on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite podcast listening app. Beyond that, subscribe to our YouTube channel. This is actually pretty good and we release brand new videos every single Wednesday at 10 a.m. What are we talking about tomorrow morning? Producer David... No, not sure yet. No, I knew what it was. Oh, that was did. a test. <laughs> we're, uh, we're reviewing New Zealand Home Loans, which is a mortgage brokerage, and saying who they're the right fit for and who they're the wrong fit for. Number three, follow us on Instagram. We are at Opas underscore partners, and we post on the daily educational content, sometimes about investment, sometimes about first homes, but that's a great place to hear more from Andrew, Sammy, and myself. Now, with that, we're going to wrap it up here. We have seen so many questions come through, and we're going to answer them probably for the next 20-odd minutes. We'll stick around. So if you've asked a question, make sure you stick around because we're going to be answering that now. Now, one of them that I have seen, and I want to get both your takes on this, I'm going to go to Sammy first. What do we think of new builds? Now, obviously, those are the main things we focus on. But, Sammy, I want to get your take first on what you think of new builds, and then we'll come to Andrew. Yeah, sure. Look, um, obviously a bit biased. I, I have purchased both of my properties as new builds. Um, I needed a little bit of extra time, I think, to get my deposit together for my first home. Um, so that was my main motivating factor, I guess, with um, my first property. Um, but then, look, I want, I want low maintenance. <laughs> I want it to be easy. I want to be living in a brand new house. Um, and you know, Coming from the most high maintenance oh, person. Oh, to make that goodness. exact joke. Well Not done. All. I'm very low maintenance, very <laughs> down to earth. Um, but no, I think I'm, I'm very pro 
New Bills. Andrew, look, I love New Bills, but I am um, I, I am very focused on investors. Investors need lower deposit. Owner occupiers, I believe, in the near future will need a lower deposit again as well. Um, you can fall under the LVR exemptions, so that alone is a big motivating factor for me. When I bought my first property and and my first properties, they were old properties, but this was a long time ago. That was eighteen years ago, and um, I, my focus then was adding value. Now, if you've got skills, like if you're a builder. Um, or if you're an um, electrician or a plumber or a handyman or something something that means that you're going to add value and that's what motivates you, sure, you can do it. Um, it's a labour of love, especially when you live there. It, it can it, it, be prepared for your life to be disrupted for a while. I wouldn't do it again personally, but if that's what gives you your kicks, absolutely. But if you want to actually just enjoy your home and you've got busy professions and or maybe you've got a child or children, then I'd just keep your life as simple as possible. The world has changed with what we want in a, in a home now. We do want low maintenance and um, particularly, you know, because your home will not be your home forever. You'll sell it to someone else. Um, with a new build, you you appeal to investors when you sell it again, Um Potentially, if you rent it out, it meets healthy home standards. Um, often, you as a tenant now will have a higher standard of heating than maybe if you just went out and bought an older property now yourself. But um, the 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 maintenance concerns and and the um, the the massive amount it's hurrying me a lot. He's doing this. Uh, the massive amount you can spend on properties um, with unforeseen maintenance costs. I just wouldn't bother personally with old properties. But if if that's you, if you are handy. Sure. Next question comes from Nicole, and it is. Oh, I've seen one from uh, from Rose. We'll get to that one. That's a doozy. Now, Nicole, it was what we think of Williams Corp. Um, Nicole, is income in these calculations your salary or your take home income after, after KiwiSaver Kiwi and student loan, Andrew? I wasn't listening. Oh. <laughs> I was thinking about Rose's question. Nicole, <laughs> let me answer your question. So in all of our uh, calculations, this is your pre-tax income. So when your employer says to you, you earn 60K, that's what you do it, you're going to use in these calculations. You're not going to be using 60K minus what do I have to pay to the IRD or minus my KiwiSaver calculation. So that's just something to bear in mind as well. Now, the next one, and we will come back to you, Rose, but we'll leave people on I'll the just hook. Ha- for I'll it. answer that now in the meantime, shall I? Uh, look, um, uh, we uh, used to do a little work with Williams Corporation. Matt and Blair are friends of mine. Uh, we don't do any work with them nowadays. It's probably just because we've got uh, quite a lot of great options that we, we have from other Developers, that would probably be what I'd leave it there. Next question is all about cross lease and clums, comes from Chloe. Is it smart to buy cross-lease property as your first home? Andrew, this okay. comes back to the existing properties. Yeah, yeah. So if, if you've decided that existing's right for you, there's nothing wrong with buying a cross-lease property. Um, we've got, got a couple of podcasts on it. I often refer to them as the poor man's subdivision because they were a cheap form of subdivision in the past. There are some complexities. If you want to do some changes to that property and it changes the layout of the property from an external standpoint, you can't do that without the neighbour's consent. So if you're just going to buy an and live it, you, and live in it. You generally speaking, get a good price on those properties. So it could be smart move uh, as a first home buyer. If you want to increase the value of that, I'd look at um, turning it into a fee symbol. You have to get again your neighbour's permission to do that. But if if you've got the stomach for that and you've got the money to pay for um, a division of the title, so that would be about sort of fifteen thousand dollars probably in Christchurch and probably be about fifty in in parts of Auckland like North Shore. Um, I would say yeah, sure, go for it. 
Now, let's answer John's question. This is an interesting one, and so listen up, Andrew. I don't want you zoning out. I'm in a squeeze where I need to get into the property market over the next 60 days. That could be if he's going overseas or some sort of situation like that. There could be something going on. So new builds are not an option for John because there's a construction period. Now, that he is pre-approved, he's ready to go. The goal is some sort of neutrally geared property. So he's buying this as an investment. He's got a 130K deposit. So he's looking to purchase for $650,000. $650,000 existing property as an investment. Anywhere in New Zealand, he can he can purchase at around that rate. As an existing property. As he, with a, he must be with a non-bank lender. Um, look, I'd say at that sort of price, you'd probably buy something maybe in Christchurch, certain parts of Christchurch. Um, you might be able to main centre, maybe Dunedin might be another spot, although I probably wouldn't be recommending that. Um, that oh, if we're listing towns, you could go to Ashburton, you Ashburton could go to su- Chicago, different maybe. places of, uh, I was going to say Selwyn, but probably not right, Selwyn anymore. One thing I would say, because out of desperation to give you an answer, um, you're going to have the same desperation of buying something. Don't just buy something for the sake of buying something. Make sure that you get the right thing. Still pass it through the same rigorous test that you would do if you didn't have this time pressure. Now, Devon has asked, is there any recording available to watch offline? Yes, we will send that out tomorrow, probably about 2 or 3 p.m. That'll be sent out, just so you know that that's coming. It's when Eve gets up after a webinar night. Now, we have another one as well, which comes from uh, Mackenzie. I'm going to throw this to you, Sammy, even though I haven't read the question yet, <laughs> but I'm going to send it to you Hopefully anyway. it's something about banking. What kind of capital gains can be expected on new build townhouses versus standalone existing properties? I'm actually going to throw this over to Andrew. <laughs> Funnily enough, this is what you're talking about. Well, actually, we we just had a a meeting of our investment committee uh, where Andrew, I, and uh, somebody in our team who's got experience managing billion-dollar funds over in Switzerland, we sit around... The real brains. ...and we bicker about what how much things are going to go up in value over the near term. Do you remember what what our forecasts are and why? Over the near term? No, 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 not over the near term. It's got to be over the long term. There's no use us giving near-term projections. No, I can't remember. So what we expect is there is very little difference between a new built townhouse and an existing property. Now, I've actually done some research, which is available on our website, opuspartners.co.nz, looking at the differences between townhouses and uh, and houses. And the difference in capital growth is incredibly marginal. There's very little difference between a house and a townhouse. Now, what you've asked is specifically about new versus existing. Now, in our investment committee yesterday, we were discussing the risk that existing properties, as defined by when the Code of Compliance Certificate was issued, we expect there may be two different markets. Why? Because anything pre-2020, March 2020, 27th of March 2020, has tax disincentives. Anything built after the 27th of March 2020 has tax incentives. Of course, those are the interest deductibility rules. And so we expect, well, there may be some difference between an existing property and an equivalent new build property because one's got tax incentives and the other one doesn't. And so new, so investors are probably going to be more likely to purchase that rather than the equivalent existing property. The way we're doing it here at OPAS is we knock off a percent per year for an existing property. So if you expect that yeah, 
New built townhouse has got to go up at 5%, for instance. We would forecast that the equivalent existing properties got to go up by 4%. That's the rule of thumb we use based on those investment committee assumptions. And it's not saying here that um, uh, you're going to definitely sell to an investor, but you are more likely to eliminate that part of the market. And the fewer buyers you have, the, the lower growth you could probably expect. I'm also definitely not saying that that is exactly what's going to happen no. where new builders 5% existings for that's the assumptions we work on here as part of our financial advisory service where we do forecasting uh, and that's what our investment committee has decided uh, upon. Let's dig into another question. That was a great one. A really oh, I love those ones. Uh, let's come over and let's find another one for you. Andrew, why would you not recommend buying in Dunedin? Well, if you live in Dunedin, then great idea. Um, uh, if you're buying as an investment, as that other question was, I think that, uh, so we do modelling on our website uh, that which shows where a market is in relation to its long-term average um, against the New Zealand median house price, and that will show pretty clearly whether somewhere is overvalued or undervalued. That's not the only reason to buy somewhere or not buy somewhere, uh, but it's a factor. So, for example, we are going to recommend some Dunedin properties to investors very, very soon, probably in the next few days. But there's some other mitigating factors around the, the fact, fact that, that I, I think, think the market's market. a little bit overvalued. Um, but I think that realistically, if you if that guy before was looking at there and he was going to buy an existing, that wouldn't be where I'd buy because old property um, in Dunedin where it's overvalued, not getting tax benefits, I think it's probably way out of what I would think is good. Sammy, i got one for you, so listen up. Evan has just asked, is it better to buy a townhouse with a body corporate or one that doesn't have a body corporate? So maybe just explain the two different options yeah. and then the differences between them. Sure. So usually it would actually be a residence association um, with townhouses, typically. Um, and that is often going to cover things like your building insurance, which is great, but also your general maintenance. So I actually quite like having a residence association or a body corporate. Um, that will just take care of all of yeah all of your general maintenance, your landscaping, et cetera, et cetera. Um, if not, that would have to be taken care of by you. Um, also things like you'd often get a cheaper rate for your building insurance if you're going through a residence association or a body corporate because they have um, obviously access to a cheaper rate. I certainly think that body corporates are something that some people are a bit worried about. Mm. Usually they can be a really good thing for the thing, for all of the reasons that Sammy's identified. And Andrew, I know you want to say something. Yeah, yeah, I think I always do. Um, I think that often people uh, uh, assume that because... It, well, um, they have that adage that body corporate's not a good investment. That's probably because apartments historically get lower capital growth rate and they are the things that we normally see with body corporates. And so there's that link, but it's not actually, it's, it's, um, it's not necessarily, they're not necessarily linked. You can get townhouses with body corporates or residence associations. Both of those are absolutely fine. And what I would say is of the townhouse developers that I know that have used body corporates for years before residence associations were even a thing, a thing you go back to their developments um, 10 years later and they look pristine. They've actually been looked after um, because there's a set of rules that people have to adhere, to, adhere by. You haven't got some guy with his... Um, dog barking in the backyard and this caravan parked at the front, um, you've kept to that standard and the maintenance has been uh, kept up. 
Really interesting one from Rose again. Rose wants our opinion on all the developers. She's asked, well, what do we think of Duval? Obviously, they're doing a lot of advertising up in Auckland at the moment. So Duval isn't a company, one of the developers that we work with. They're not one of our 58 that we've got relationships with. Uh, if you want an in-depth analysis, we've got a whole podcast on it. If you go to Property Academy Podcast, wherever you listen and search for Duval, we gave a really interesting review on, I think, the big apartment block they did down in, uh, in Monaco, Plaza, yep. Lakewood Plaza. So you can see that. Uh, and what I would say as well, Rose, is that we have just recently released our top seven developers that we work with. If you want to know the ones we really love, uh, you can find those either on our previous property investment webinar that's just on our website, or I've also written a blog recently that you can find on there of our top five proper, of our top five developers. Now, that has been geared towards for investors, but it will also answer your questions because these are ones that we stand behind. These are people like CETA, uh, certain parts of Stonewood, uh, Oak Ridge, uh, Wendelbourne, uh, Edifice. I could name a whole heap. Obviously, there are 58. Uh, Oaks Living. There are a number out there. Uh, but those are the ones that we can really stand behind because we've worked with them. Our clients and our investors and our first-time buyers have purchased with them and we can actually stand behind them. And look, I think one of the things that I really look for when I'm choosing a developer, because it's a big part of my role, is I look for someone that's maybe had... Um, something go wrong at some stage and fixed it and they've dealt with it in a in a um great uh, in a great manner for the for the uh, in the manner that's best for the purchaser so for example um there was a development where the developer had the opportunity to cancel under sunset clauses, which I'm sure you're all very aware of what they are now and um the project had run o over time over budget massively, the uh, the actual builder that the developer had employed to do the job, the contractor had gone broke in between, so um, basically there was a massive loss at the end that the developer could have recouped by cancelling those contracts and reselling them again. Now because of our relationship with him, he didn't do that, he completed those jobs and they transferred to the investors in this case that had signed up for those properties 12 months earlier or whatever it was. And those kind of things mean a lot to me because you want to know when you're purchasing that you're actually going to get your product. Sometimes it will be delayed, but you want to know that it's going to be on uh, it's going to be on budget and you're actually going to have it. Um, and I think this year is going to be really hard for some of the big bigger developers. So you might see um, some challenging times ahead, and, and some of them not exist in the next 18, 24 months. Now, Stephanie has got a banger of a question, a really good specific one about new builds, so I'm going to throw it to you, Sammy. Now, this is all about pre-settlement inspections. So what should she be looking out for? Do you have any suggestions for how to do a pre-purchase? Oh, no, it wasn't a pre-purchase inspection. It was a pre-purchase agreement. Sorry about that, Stephanie. <laughs> we were going to answer a totally different question. What suggestions do you have for doing a pre-purchase agreement between joint buyers. This might actually be one for you, Andrew, oh, sorry. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think what you're asking is, okay, Sammy and I decide that we're going to buy a house together. What's our agreement going to be? Um, wishful thinking, Sammy. Um, <laughs> so, so I think the best thing you can do, um, particularly if it's your partner, is have a conversation about this first before you go see your lawyers. You're going to need to see your lawyers and you're both probably going to need independent legal advice. But what you want to do is you want to sit down and nut out who can put what in there and come up with an agreement. And then you need to have the chat which goes somewhere along the lines of this. 
if we break up, what do you think should happen? Now, Sammy might say, well, Andrew, you put in 100000 and I put in ten, so therefore we should get our respective deposits back and then split the difference, split the profits, which would seem quite reasonable. She might also say, listen here, I've been supporting you for all these years, making dinner, so we're putting in um, dis, dis, uh, um, disproportionate amounts of deposit, but we're splitting the difference, including the deposit, in the event of a separation. So you need to figure these kind of things out, and the reason you have the awkward chat now is because it's a lot easier to have than when Sammy's run off with a new toy boy, um, and, and then it's just an argument. So you have the, you, you come up with an agreement, then you'll go see your lawyer, and then your lawyer will document it. And if you're in a relationship, then one of you is going to have to go and get independent legal advice, and then you get it all written up. So have those conversations early, and it's it's very, very uncommon, uncommon for everyone to have the same amount of input. Um, I what what I tend to recommend for people is look, take back whatever your part is and then split the the rest 50-50 on the basis that you're putting in 50-50. And you might have some triggers that change that. So if um, Sammy and I, God forbid, got married in a few years' time after that or had a child or something like that, then the rules might change. Right, we got time for three more questions before we wrap up and let you all go. The first one that we're going to ask is from Evan. Now, this is probably going to be for you, Andrew, which is what do you think about townhouses or houses built, you know, during the 2000s, so the plaster probably were leaky, but now they've been repaired with a cavity system. Apparently uh -huh. lots in the market in Auckland right now. So uh, what do you think of a repaired leaky home? Okay, if it's repaired, then I would say get a... Uh, a building report by a builder's check by someone who knows what they're doing and can check all these things. Um, there's probably not enough time in the market for me to make a firm opinion on this. Um, leaky homes scared the hell out of me because um, I saw some of the devastating effects that had on people. And there is always going to be the stigma. People are always going to pay less. You've got to accept that if you buy one, you're going to sell it probably at a lesser growth rate in the future than if it was a normal property. But um, if it has been repaired and you get a signer from someone else, I wouldn't write it off completely like I would a leaky uh, a, a monolithic cladding that hasn't been. Now, I'm going to get both your opinions on the next question, which comes from Rose. Rose has asked, do you think that the market will boom again because people are getting residency and Kiwis are coming home after the announcements that have just come? We're going to come to Savvy and then Andrew. Yeah, sure. Look, I think in certain parts of the country we're getting a lot more inquiry from people overseas. Um, Auckland, I've had quite a few inquiries actually come through from people wanting to move home. So I think in certain parts of the country it's probably going to boom more than others. Auckland. I think Auckland's <laughs> going to see a lot of it. And then the final question that we will ask tonight. <laughs> Sammy, have you got any deals in Tabuka was the first one. Uh, we are focusing at the moment uh, just in Auckland, um, but if anyone can find deals, we can. Uh, and then the last question that I've got, and this is a really specific one, is I've got I've heard with cross leases that they don't typically allow pets. 
Now, Andrew, there's no there's no criteria around pets for uh, across lease property. I think that you might be talking. This was you came might be from thinking body corporate. So yes, um, you might be thinking so body corporate. So with a cross lease, uh, uh, that's basically like you've got your own separate area, but you the technical thing is that you lease each other's land. So therefore, if you want to change anything about the property, you can't do that with your na- neighbour's consent. With body corporate, often there will be some criteria or residence associations. Sometimes there will be some criteria around pets. They're they have to be reasonable, so you can't just say you can't have pets, but if you've got um, a couple of Rottweilers, sorry if anyone loves Rottweilers, uh, and they're barking all the time, that's going to be an issue with somewhere with a body corporate. Now, I've got a final question, but the question isn't for either of these two, it's for you at home, and what I want to know is this is our first first home webinar that we've done in almost two years now. Now, what I want to know is, do you want more of these? We do these for investors every single month and we get thousands of people come along and if you want us to do these for first home buyers, I want you to go into the chat right now and say, yes, please, or yep, that sounds good. If you don't think we should do these uh, regularly or you don't want more of these, then please don't let us know in the chat because your silence will speak volumes. But I've also got quite a fragile ego and I couldn't handle the criticism. That's just the truth of the matter. 100%. Now, with that, we're going to bid you guys all a good night. Thank you so much for coming along. Really appreciate it. And if you've said you want to have a wee chit-chat with Sammy, we'll give you a buzz tomorrow. See you guys. Have a good night.